Welcome to Hullbrenders Practical Solutions in Healthcare podcast, featuring thoughtful analysis and insightful commentary on the legal issues facing the healthcare industry. This episode features the audio from our recent webinar entitled Accelerated Payments and the $100 Billion Healthcare Relief Fund, Financial Strategies for Providers and Suppliers. Well, good day, everyone. I hope everybody can hear me. Uh, I'm John Williams. I'm the office managing partner uh, for Hall Render's office in Washington, D.C. I'm also the head of our federal advocacy service line. I want to thank everybody for joining us for this webinar on financial strategies for providers and suppliers regarding accelerated payments and the $100 billion healthcare relief fund provided for in the CARES Act. I am very pleased to be joined today by two outstanding lawyers who practice in the areas of Medicare, reimbursement, and regulatory matters, Liz Elias from our Indianapolis office and Lori Wink from our Milwaukee office. To give you an idea of where we're headed today, uh, Liz is going to walk you through the accelerated payment program. Lori is going to talk about the $100 billion in healthcare funding uh, provided for in the CARES Act. And then I'm going to discuss what might come next in a phase four bill or as we discovered in the last 12 hours, uh, 24 hours, uh, what might come as early as this week. Uh, when we're done, we hope you'll know what actions you should be taking now and, and what steps uh, you should take in the future. And with that, I will turn it over to Lori. Lori? Thanks, John. So without stating the obvious, we're here today um, because expenses at healthcare organizations are increasing as they're preparing for the COVID surges and surges in treating patients. Um, we see expenses increasing across the boards for our clients. And at the same time, there's a significant disruption to non-emergent clinical services because there's cancellations and postponing of non-essential elective surgeries and procedures and clinical visits. What we're hearing across the country is about where there's a 40% decrease in these type of services being provided. One client we talked to that was about a 200-bed hospital was losing on average about $4 million a week as a result of lost revenue. And some critical access hospitals we're talking to are seeing about a 70% decrease in this type of revenue and services because um, there's no surge or cases yet in that case, cases related to COVID in those situations, but they still have the decline in revenue. So there are a number of relief funding opportunities available, and here we've listed um, 12 of the options. Today, we're gonna talk about the accelerated payment program and the 100 billion in funding, but we do have um, bulletins that we're releasing related to these other, other sources of funding, and we do have additional webinars on these fundings, and we've already had at least the first one um, with respect to telehealth. On the relief funding strategies, what we're recommending our clients do is they first establish a dedicated work group to really um, lead the funding sources and applying for, for the funding sources. Um, the next step would be reviewing these funding sources and we're really making sure and encouraging our clients to monitor deadlines, um, to understand the payment process with respect to these funding sources, whether it's first come, first serve under them, 
you need to get those applications in quicker, and confirming eligibility. Then at the same time, you, healthcare organizations need to track the expenses and the lost revenues related to COVID-19. Now, there aren't really specifics that we're seeing on, um, in, at least in what we're talking about today with respect to what those expenses and lost revenues are. So you really need to create policies and procedures and just start that implementation process so you have something that's defensible um, as time goes on. And then you need to submit the applications and the request as soon as possible, especially for those first come, first serve, and as those deadlines are approaching. Then maintain the necessary documentation related to those expenses, and then prepare for any reports that need to be submitted to the agencies that are releasing the funds and any subsequent audits that may occur in the future. So the next slide is really just to emphasize those immediate steps about identifying the sources and developing those policies and procedures for capturing the revenue. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Liz. Thanks, Lori. I'm gonna talk about the accelerated payment program. Although it's been only used 100 times in the past five years, the CMS Accelerated Payment Program is an existing program that allows CMS to accelerate and advance Medicare payments in order to provide emergency funding and address cash flow issues that might be caused by claims processing delays. It's historically been used in response to natural disasters to accelerate cash flow. However, under the CARES Act, the program has been greatly expanded. It's essentially now a bridge loan that if it's timely repaid can be interest-free and likely won't be viewed as debt on the balance sheet. It's important to understand that eligibility for the accelerated payment program is not limited to hospitals. It can be accessed by other types of healthcare entities enrolled in the Medicare program as long as those providers have billed Medicare for claims within the last 180 days, they're not in bankruptcy proceedings, they're not under active medical review or any type of program integrity investigation, and they do not have any outstanding delinquent Medicare overpayments. Perhaps most importantly, there is no specific need-based threshold to apply for the accelerated payment program. As far as what providers can request, most hospitals can request up to 100% of the Medicare payment amount based on a six-month look-back period, However, critical access hospitals can request up to 125% of their payment amount for a six-month look-back period. Other types of providers and suppliers can request up to 100% of the Medicare payment amount, but only for a three-month look-back period. These accelerated payment requests are submitted to the Medicare Administrative Contractors, or in short, the MACs. It's important to realize that the accelerated payment program as of this time are not in any way part of the $100 billion in the public health care and social services emergency fund that was also created by the CARES Act. The accelerated payment program is, is now is, is an entirely separate program. The applicable CMS guidance is not specific on how providers should calculate their accelerated payment amount or what type of documentation is required for that request. However, in speaking with various MACs over the past week and a half, we've gotten some information. CMS is providing the MACs a listing of the amount that each provider or supplier is able to obtain through this accelerated payment process. And that amount is the maximum that a provider can be approved for, but providers and suppliers can request less. 
generally speaking, these requests are going to be processed on a first-in, first-out basis. And initially, CMS stated that the MACs were going to issue payments within seven calendar days of receiving a request. However, in a briefing last evening, CMS Administrator Seema Verma stated that 17,000 accelerated payment applications have already been approved, so currently they are operating faster than the promised timeline. 25,000 applications have been received to date. We wanted to give you an example of one of the accelerated payment request forms. This is WPS's version of its form as of last Friday on April 3rd. Um, most MACs have revised their forms to simplify them and remove some of the certifications that are normally present under the regular accelerated payment program. However, we have confirmed um, with multiple MACs that they will accept all versions of the accelerated payment form, whether it's the, the CARES Act revision or the original form. Important to note on your form, when you're completing your request, you should not include Part C or Medicare Advantage in your um, payment request. And we believe that the PSNR is a good source to determine what your request amount should be. There isn't, a, there isn't guidance out there specifically to um, point to a specific data source for you to use, but the PSNR would be a good, a good place to, to get that information. Additionally, we've gotten information from the MACs encouraging us to tell providers that you would want to complete separate forms for subunits like inpatient rehab facilities and inpatient psych facilities, and you'd want to send those in ideally in a separate email so that they all have their own separate delivery timeline to the MAC. Likewise, if you bill under multiple NPIs, you would want to submit a separate request form for each NPI. Some MACs are requiring these forms to be signed by an authorized official. If you're not sure who might be listed on your 855 as your authorized official, the person, if you complete a Medicare cost report, the person who signs your Medicare cost report is an authorized official and would be a good rule of thumb to use for signing these accelerated payment requests. As far as the funds transmissions, these payments are coming through as regular Medicare remit, remits. Um, it is supposed to be the only thing that is on that remit, and the remittance advice is somehow supposed to state that it's the accelerated payment. Um, the first payments went out overnight last Thursday on April 2nd. Um, anecdotally, we're hearing early reports that the initial payments are are matching the the request or within the you know within the the realm of reason. We do want to caution um, providers to watch the remittance advices carefully. We have received some information that CMS has given only three months of payment for some hospitals. Um, similarly, we are hearing that some critical access hospitals are not receiving the 125% payment amount. They're receiving the 100% payment amount. These are being corrected as they're being brought to the attention of the MACs, and, the, and CMS is also working to update its list. But if you do find yourself in a situation where the payment doesn't closely match your request, you might want to reach out to your MAC to see if you might fall into one of these, um, these, these outliers in the CMS data. This is just an example, just so you can see um, what, what the, the sort of process is and, and the requested amount and how they lined up with the payment. Um, and that this also has a critical access hospital in there, just so you can see that as an example. As I said at the outset of my remarks, these are this is essentially a loan. Um, it does have to be repaid. Currently, the way the recoupment process is going to work for all providers, regardless of, of what type of provider you are, 
the recoupment is going to start on day 120 after you receive your accelerated payment. And that recoupment is going to be against your paid claim. So starting on day 120, you might experience a dip in your Medicare payments for some period of time while that recoupment is happening. For other hospitals besides, or for other providers besides hospitals, the recoupment period is going to last 90 days. And on day 210, if there's any remaining balance, providers will have 30 days to pay that outstanding balance or interest could start being assessed on day 241. There are supposed to be demand letters that are sent by the MAC, but we would recommend that providers calendar these dates so that you keep track of them internally just in case you don't receive communication from your MAC. Just to recap, recruitment starts on day 120. Day 210 is your 30-day warning. And on day 241 is when the interest could start to accrue. Similarly, for hospitals, they will also be assessed interest, but the interest for hospitals will not begin until one year after the accelerated payment is received. Likewise, you should get a demand letter from your MAC at the one-year mark. The interest rate is currently set at 10.25%. The AHA sent a letter earlier this week to advocate for a lower interest rate and possible loan forgiveness. Um, however, in response to the AHA's letter from, from Monday, CMS Administrator Seema Verma made a statement that CMS is required to use that 10.25% interest rate because it is set by the Treasury Department and their hands are tied. Um, so we'll have to watch and see if there are any further changes made to, um, to, to reduce that interest rate. But right now, CMS is saying that they don't have the ability to adjust that interest rate. Um, providers may also request an extended repayment plan if the recoupment process is not feasible for you at the 120-day at the timeline. There is a CMS manual process that outlines that, and you should reach out to your MAC if you have any, um, if you have any questions about the extended repayment plan. And just again to summarize, for the hospitals, the deadlines would be day 120 interest, day 365 um, would be your sort of warning, and then you would have another 30 days day, on day 395 is when your interest could start accruing. And with that, I'm going to kick it back to Lori for some discussion on the $100 billion healthcare relief fund. So the $100 billion in funding. So let me give you a roadmap as to where I'm going with this. So first I'm gonna start with a summary of the statute. And the statute really is three pages of text in the CARES Act. There's no regulations and there's no written guidance that we have with respect to the implementation of, this, um, of these laws. What we have are proposals from different associations that I'll go through and arguably those are a little bit dated because then um, we're gonna go through the information that we have from CMS. So with respect to the $100 billion in funding, um, the CARES Act allows $100 billion that's available to providers until expended. So that really makes it sound like it's a first-come, um, first-serve process, um, but we'll wait and see how that works out. And it's for responses to um, the COVID-19 crisis. It's for eligible healthcare providers for healthcare-related expenses and lost revenues that are attributable to the coronavirus. Now, importantly, in, this, in the CARES Act, eligible healthcare providers for purposes of this funding includes public entities, Medicare, Medicaid, enrolled suppliers and providers, 
for-profit and non-for-profit ent entities that treat individuals with suspected or actual um, COVID-19. Now my slides aren't working. There we go. Um, so importantly, this is not tied to the Medicare definition of a provider. Um, it includes more than just hospitals. It includes nursing facilities, physicians, ambulatory surgery centers, federally qualified health centers, rural health clinics, home health agencies, and, and the list goes on. With respect to what's eligible, again, it's covered expenses and lost revenues. Now, the, the CARES Act does stipulate that when they're paying for these expenses or lost revenues, it cannot be reimbursements that are, or expenses and revenues that are covered from other sources or other sources are obligated to pay for those. The act also includes broad funding um, definitions. It includes alternative care sites, supplies, um, including um, PPE, operational issues, surge capacity, et cetera. But because these are broad definitions, I really think that's almost a good thing right now because as long as you can arguably and reasonably demonstrate that the expenses and the lost revenues are attributable to the COVID-19 crisis, I think there's an argument that they're covered under the, the funding source. Now, just to help put this in context, the Medicare budget in the last couple of years is about 700 billion, where this is 100 billion, but it's not just for Medicare. It includes Medicaid, uninsured population, and private payers. It's all the expenses and lost revenues related to this pandemic. They're also reporting and payment obligations um, or stipulations under the CARES Act. Providers are required to submit reports and maintain documentation to support the expenses and the lost revenues. So again, you know, we really encourage you to make policies and procedures or develop policies and procedures to help define those revenues and how they're gonna be captured and then maintain that documentation. It does say that HHS will provide these payments on a rolling basis, so they're not all at once. And it does require that a provider apply for and justify the need for payment under the $100 billion, which I'll come back to that point in a little bit. And then the options for HHS to provide those payments include you know, prepayments, prospective payments, and um, retrospective payments. Some of the proposals that are out there, the first one, and again, I know these are a little bit dated. These were actually pretty good last week. Um, HA, um, their proposal was to have a per, per bed payment for every hospital. It would be 25,000 per bed, 30,000 per hotspot. So if you had a 240 bed staffed hospital bed, and they don't define how bad is defined. We're assuming it's gonna be, it would be something um, akin to staffed bed versus licensed beds. You'd get about $6 million with a 25,000 per bed. Now in comparison, some hospitals that we're talking to that are right around that 240 bed, staffed bed level, they're losing about $3 million at least a week in revenue from cancellations with no surges. So it's covering only about two weeks of just lost revenue, not the increase in, in expenses. And some of these hospitals at about that size are applying for the accelerated payment um, 
through the accelerated payment program, and they're getting about 53 million. Um, some other um, proposals that are out there, there's one proposal from about a group of nine hospital and physician groups, and they propose to use the periodic interim payments for providers and suppliers. I think that one would be kind of difficult to implement. It's tied um, to some older Medicare laws. It's still um, used in some parts of the country, but I think it would just be more difficult. And then there's the Federation of American Hospitals, um, which they really advocate for most of the payments to be going to hospitals because they're on the front line of treating patients in this crisis, and they advocate for a streamlined application process, kind of a phased payment approach, um, hitting the hardest, paying the hardest hit areas with immediate relief, and then in June, um, paying for March and April impacts, and then final impacts in October. But most importantly, we do have some reports out of Washington. So the first report came out, I think it was late last week, and the proposal was to pay um, hospitals and providers for uninsured um, patients that have the COVID-19. So under that proposal, they would receive roughly the Medicare equivalent. In other words, what they'd, be get, what they'd get paid if they build Medicare for the same service. And there would be a requirement that they don't balance bill the patient, which would be the difference between um, the charges and what they ultimately got paid from Medicare. Estimates that have come out related um, to this type of funding, it would be about $40 billion or about 40% uh, of the total that's to be expended under this particular provision of the CARE Act. Um, we do think that long-term, it could impact the uncompensated care payments that hospitals get. Um, we do think that would obviously be less impact than the direct payment um, through this 100 billion in funding, but it would have some impact. And it would also affect states dis disproportionately and hospitals disproportionately depending on how, what their uninsured patient population is. And then just yesterday, um, CMS Administrator Verma announced an, a second proposal where they, CMS would distribute about 30 billion um, this week yet, and those distributions would be based on Medicare revenue. And interestingly, the Medicare revenue is not defined. So we don't know what the look back period is um, to define how much different hospitals or different organizations would be getting. Um, and we also don't know what types of revenues Medicare or, or CMS would be looking at when they make that distribution, when they're looking at um, hospitals and clinics and, and nursing facilities. She did say that this would essentially be a grant with no strings attached, which is also interesting because the CARES Act did require, as I mentioned, that you maintain documentation to support the payments um, from the 100 billion. And it did require an application to justify um, the payment from the 100 billion source. So we'll see where that goes. Um, how this is going to get paid is what she said, it would be a direct deposit um, for Medicare providers, as long as you're set up for direct deposit. If you're not, it would require a simple registration and then the money would be released. And she did say this was not a first come, first serve payment process, so it's available to all healthcare providers. The other important thing to realize about this proposal is it's really going to focus on um, organizations, healthcare providers, 
with the majority of their payments or a lot of their payments coming from Medicare because it's Medicare revenue. So if it's a provider with Medicaid, private pay, or a large uninsured population, those payments would be delayed and those would be released in the next round of funding. And I'm gonna turn it over to John to see if he has some input on these um, two proposals out of Washington. Yeah, thanks, Lori. Um, I hope everybody can, can hear me. Um, uh, as, as, thanks, Lori. As, as regards the, the uninsured issue, uh, just some background on the politics of all this. I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, why are they gonna use this, this uninsured money out of the $100 billion fund, billion dollar fund? And the answer is it's pure politics. The administration does not want to reopen enrollment due to special enrollment under the Affordable Care Act. Um, they have made a political decision that they are not going to breathe life into the Affordable Care Act if it can all be helped during this pandemic. So that is the reason that they decided that they were going to use this first chunk of money uh, out, of the, out of this fund to go to the, uh, to the uninsured. Um, the, the other thing I would add, too, is, is and Lori sort of touched on it, uh, there was a Kaiser report that came out yesterday um, that shows that doing this, um, using this, this pool of money, um, uh, to fund uh, payments for, for uninsured coverage uh, could take up to somewhere between 14 to up to 40% of the 100 billion. So that could end up being a really big chunk of change out of this fund. Um, and as I'll talk a little bit uh, later, um, there's already talk about getting more money um, uh, into this. So I think the only other thing I've got to add on that one, Lori, is that what we've learned in the last 12 hours or so is that HRSA is going to be the entity responsible for making these direct deposits. And HHS mentioned within the last couple of hours that they've already put out $1.3 billion to community health centers um, through, through HRSA. So um, I think folks can probably look for those deposits to come from HRSA. Thanks, John. John, can you just advance to the next slide, please? Then the last thing that I just wanted to mention before turning it over to John again are there are additional sources of payment, both from the Medicare and the Medicaid um, program that are, are being just implemented through the regular payment process. So for example, CMS has suspended the sequestration cuts from May 1st through December 31st, and hospitals are receiving an additional 20% increase in payments uh, when they treat patients with the COVID-19 diagnosis. They have eliminated the 15% reduction in clinical lab tests from 2021 to 2024. And I think that's important because lab has just been such a focus um, with the COVID-19 crisis. And as we move forward, um, the, um, CMS will cover, Medicare will cover the COVID-19 vaccine without any cost sharing once that vaccine is developed and they have delayed any Medicaid dish cuts. The last one I wanted to mention, and again, these are just examples, is that CMS in Congress has really expanded um, telehealth coverage for this crisis. And I think it's really important to think about that as we move forward because telehealth has been um, very limited in terms of coverage historically. This has really expanded it. And I think there's some thought that that might become a permanent change. And I know John has some thoughts on that he'd like to share also. I do, Lori, thank you. Um, 
Yeah, the, the telehealth stuff to me is fascinating because we've been following telehealth on Capitol Hill for years and years now. And there's always been a resistance to widespread expansion of the use of telehealth. Um, because, you know, most people who are big advocates of telehealth believe that using telehealth will bring down the overall cost of health care. Well, the impediment in Washington for years has been the Congressional Budget Office. And the Congressional Budget Office is the entity that's responsible for determining what the cost of legislation is. And the folks that, that do health care at CBO, as we call it, they've always believed that the expansion of telehealth will cause an increase in Medicare spending because it will be so popular, it will be so utilized that it will actually cost the government more money uh, than it's gonna save. But as I'll mention again later, we are now in a world where no one is caring about cost. And I think everybody is really seeing firsthand the benefits of, of telehealth. And so I think you're gonna see a significant uh, expansion that is here to stay um, as far as telehealth is concerned. Future legislation. Um, in the days and weeks after CARES passed, uh, we heard Democrats uh, on the Hill saying that we're gonna need a fourth stimulus bill. Uh, right away, from the minute that, that CARES passed, they were already advocating for a fourth. Republicans at that point were saying, no, you know what, we need to wait and see what impact CARES has uh, on this situation before we go any further. Um, that's now changed. It's completely changed, and Republicans are on board. And I think it's really for two reasons. Uh, one, the longer that it takes to get the money out the door, uh, the more pressure there is on lawmakers to do more. Um, the other reason is that members of Congress are, are home with their constituents because Congress is in recess. So they are at home getting an earful about websites not working, about checks not arriving, uh, and a whole host of other issues. So on Monday uh, of this week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi hosted a conference call uh, with all the members, the, all the Democratic members of the House of Representatives. And, and here's what we know from people who were in that, who were part of that call and for, from other folks that we talked to on the Hill about what it is that Pelosi really laid out as what she wants for what we're calling phase four or the fourth stimulus package. First thing is, is that Speaker Pelosi has said that the next bill is, is gonna cost uh, at least a trillion dollars. Um, I think it's gonna be end up being more than that. Uh, Congress never comes in below initial cost estimates uh, of, of legislation. And I think once that everybody starts getting their, their interests and their projects into a piece of legislation like that, we're going to go way over, way over a trillion dollars. But what you're seeing on the screen now is, is what Pelosi outlined on that call. Um, and you probably heard about some of these things already. Um, you probably heard, for example, that it's, it's taken up to eight weeks. Uh, for paper checks to arrive from the IRS to those folks that don't have direct deposit. Um, so they feel like they need to do more about that. Um, there is uh, 350, uh, the 350 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program uh, isn't enough. Um, and, and SBA is already, I mean, SBA was never built to disseminate, to, to distribute that much money this fast. Um, and we've also heard, and I'm sure you have too, that, that banks are, are shutting off loans. And, and so it's, it's been pretty much a hot mess. And so they're going to need more money for that. Um, 
in the last 24 hours, we've heard more about that, and I'll get to that uh, in a moment as well. Um, I'd like to highlight the OSHA protections here for a second. I had a health system that I spoke with earlier this week ask me if there was any appetite on Capitol Hill to um, ease OSHA restrictions, giving everything that's going on. And the answer to that is actually no. Uh, the appetite on Capitol Hill at this point is to increase OSHA, OSHA protections for medical personnel and for first responders. Now, something else that's happened in Washington is that the Democratic leadership on healthcare-related committees in the House and the Senate uh, have made clear that they're going to seek additional funds in the next bill that will, that will cover things like those that you see uh, here on the screen. Um, some of these are controversial. Um, I spoke to the Democratic Staff Director for the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, over the weekend. And one of the things that he said to me is that the Democrats in the House and the Senate want to make the next stimulus bill as bipartisan as possible. And if that's the case, then some of the stuff that you see on this screen are complete non-starters. Uh, again, this, this special enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act that Trump administration has already said that's a non-starter with them. So I, I, think, I don't think that's, that's really in the cards. The other thing, and the reason I was actually, the main reason I was calling the staff director was the Medicaid, uh, the Medicaid Fiscal Accountability Rule, uh, or MFAR. Back when CARES was being negotiated towards the end, uh, the House Democrats introduced their own alternative proposal to CARES. And one of the things that was included in that piece of legislation was a two-year moratorium on finalization of MFAR. And that never happened because that bill uh, was, that version of the bill was never adopted. Uh, and I was calling to lobby uh, for not a moratorium, but for complete withdrawal of MFAR in the next piece of legislation. And the response that I got was, look, this is gonna be as bipartisan as possible. So if we're gonna get enormous pushback on MFAR, then we're gonna drop it and it's not gonna be in the next package. So we could see a withdrawal of MFAR, we could see a two-year moratorium on finalization of MFAR, or we could see nothing on MFAR. Now, where, where the White House has been on all of this is a bit vague uh, in terms of what they want in a fourth bill. Um, they've mentioned some hazard pay for workers, more aid to states. And then as most of you may have seen yesterday, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin formally requested another $250 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program. Now, this is something that Congress is going to have, pass, have to pass legislation uh, in order to make happen. This is not the fourth stimulus bill. This is an interim spending bill that the White House wants passed to bolster the Paycheck Protection Program, which is running low on money. Now, this morning, Senator Schuster and Speaker Pelosi uh, released their, their, their counter proposal to this. And part of that would include, of the $250 billion that the, that the administration is asking for, is, is using $125 billion of it um, and channeling that money through community-based lenders, it's for farmers, minority, uh, and better-known businesses, and, and other nonprofits in rural areas. Of note, they also asked for another $100 billion for hospitals, community health centers, and health systems. So the Democrat leadership on the Hill has already started advocating for more money 
for hospitals because they know that this 100 billion um, is, is not going to be enough. And they're also asking for $150 billion more for state and local governments. So we're talking about a half a trillion dollars when you total this up, and this is not even the fourth stimulus bill. This is an interim spending bill to get us over this hump until they can do a fourth bill. Uh, when we do get to uh, a fourth stimulus bill, uh, politics is going to again come into play um, in return for more money for businesses like insurance companies who got left out of the last one. Um, Democrats on the Hill are going to want more direct payments to individuals, more worker protections, uh, and other things that are important to them. We're going to get back to the typical legislative horse trading that goes on when legislation is passed. One of the things that, that uh, Democrats are proposing is what they're calling a hero fund. Uh, and that would be hazard pay of about $13 an hour up to $25,000 limit for uh, essential workers like janitors, store clerks, delivery drivers who have, have put their own personal safety at risk uh, to help us all get through this. As for outlook and timing uh, for either an interim bill or a forced spending bill, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, said yesterday that um, he wants the Senate to pass this interim spending bill tomorrow so that the House can have it by Friday. Um, that's a little bit easier for the Senate to do. Again, as I mentioned, Congress is in recess. So they're going to try to hold these votes by voice vote. Um, in the Senate, they only have 100 senators. Uh, it's a lot easier to get 100 senators on board with a voice vote than it is in the House. It only takes one member to object to stop a voice vote. And so, again, managing 100 is easier than managing it in the House, where they have 435 members. So if the House is going to act quickly and approve this interim spending on a voice vote, it's going to take someone not objecting. And if those of you who follow this stuff closely like, like I do, um, you recall that with the third stimulus bill, there was um, one congressman from Kentucky who objected to doing it by voice vote and ended up having, having a lot of people fly back to Washington um, in order to vote. So I know they're going to try to, to avoid that and try to do a voice vote and get that interim bill out uh, by the weekend. Phase five, um, there will be more. There's going to be a phase five. Uh, everybody sort of agreed upon that. Um, there's going to be more for health care in that, but we don't know what that's going to entail yet. Whatever doesn't make it into phase four is probably going to make it into phase five. Um, for those of you who are interested in infrastructure matters, um, that's, you know, bridges, roads, those types of things. Uh, that is something that's being talked about for phase five. Um, and they're talking about another trillion dollar bill uh, in phase five. Infrastructure has been talked about for years in Washington, but there's never been the political will to make the tough choices on that, like increasing the gasoline tax and other taxes to pay for it. But again, we're in a world now where nobody uh, really seems to be worried about how much of this stuff, uh, how much this stuff costs uh, and how it's being paid for. So on that happy note, uh, we're right up against our, our time, maybe a little bit over. We'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, we have resources available uh, for COVID-19 funding and federal advocacy. You can see the names of those folks uh, listed here on this slide. We will be sending out a, uh, a PDF uh, and recording of our webinar uh, via email for those who registered. So look for uh, those in your inbox.
again, thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope you come away with a better grasp of what you should be doing right now and what to expect in the future. Uh, I know we've gotten a number of great questions. Please check out uh, hallrender.com backslash coronavirus uh, for, more for more information there uh, and some possible answers to your questions. Please contact us. You see our contact information right here if we can help you navigate any of these issues. So thank you again for joining us. Everyone, please stay safe and healthy as we all continue to navigate these unprecedented times. Good day, everyone.